Jessica, your love for music and your love for God is a blessing to us. We appreciate it. Well, good morning. It's kind of gloomy out there. It's not gloomy in here, is it? I hope not. Well, for those of you that had your coffee this morning, you will notice that or might think there's a glitch in the sermon series because it's a little out of order. If you didn't notice that, I'm sorry. Maybe you didn't have enough coffee. Maybe maybe you need a second cup. But we have skipped ahead in our verses and we will go to verse 18. So we're going to skip the first 17 verses of Matthew 21 this morning. There's a reason for that. This is Passion Week. It's uh, or not Passion Week. It's the Easter season. And um, so March 14th. We will celebrate Palm Sunday, which is the triumphal entry of Christ. Those are the verses that we're not going to cover until the 14th. So I'm going to save those of April. Did I say March? Some of us live in the past, I guess. My apologies. Um, So, yeah, so April 14th and then, of course, Easter on the 21st. So I'm going to save those. So we got to kind of pretend that Jesus has already made his triumphal entry. But we'll go into those verses in great detail as Jesus declares himself as king. But for right now, he's already done that for our purposes. And so this is kind of day two, really. In Matthew right now, we're in Passion Week. And it's following the very last days of Christ. And things really take a turn here in in his demeanor, in the content of his teaching, and in other people's response to him. So chronologically, Matthew doesn't really care much for chronology. Uh, He cares more about the message. And so sometimes he just kind of combines things so you get the idea of what's going on. If you want to look at the chronology, Mark pays more attention to that. So technically speaking, when we're going to look at the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree happened on a Tuesday. The Monday, Jesus made his triumphal entry where they laid their, their cloaks down before him and waved their palm branches And Tuesday, he went in and he cleansed the temple. On the way in to cleanse the temple is when he cursed the fig tree. Wednesday, when they came back to the temple the next day, the disciples saw the fig tree was kaputz. It was compost. So Matthew just kind of puts it all together as if it happened all at one time. But that's not exactly accurate. But the point is still the same. And the teaching of Christ is still the same. So that's where we are. We're skipping ahead a little bit. And uh, this whole week, Jesus came into town. He came into the temple. He taught there. He cleansed it. He did other things. And then at night, he would go back, or text will tell us, and he stayed in the town of Bethany, which is nearby, very likely at Martha, Mary, and Lazarus's house. And he has already raised Lazarus from the dead. So let's look at our text this morning. Verses 18 through 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, 
Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So just because it didn't actually happen, the withering of the tree right before their very eyes, it's no less impressive. As a matter of fact, it may even even added to the effect as they walk into town on a Tuesday, he curses the tree. And then the next day, unexpectedly, they walk by that same tree and it's gone. It's fertilizer. And they're astounded by this. It could have happened instantly. 24 hours or less is no less impressive. But what do we do with this verse? Honestly, when you come to these verses, it seems a little bit out of place. Why would Jesus? I mean, Jesus is about life, not death. Why would Jesus... With his words, kill a tree, a fig tree. And what does this have to do with his ministry? And I mean, he's if he wanted to manifest his power, he's already done that in ways way more spectacular than speaking to a tree and having it wither. So what is going on? Is this is this just Jesus being hangry? You know, he wants some fig newtons. He wants something there and it's not there for him. And so. That's it. You're gone. You're out of here. Or is there some kind of spiritual lesson to be learned from all of this? Well, let's look at the message of the fig tree. And we do need to back up. And I know I kind of started by backing up, but we need to back up and understand the context of this. So it makes sense to us. Remember that God all along, beginning in Genesis, has promised the people a Messiah Not just a Messiah, a deliverer, not just a deliverer, but a king, a ruler, a leader. And then in the prophets, he explains that this king that I'm sending is not only going to be a person, a man, he's going to be God. So that message has gone out to the people. So they're expecting a king. And Jesus is doing kingly things. You won't understand or you won't get to hear the kingly things he does the triumphal entry, because we're not going to study that yet. But he literally declares himself, as a matter of fact, that's what the message is for Palm Sunday, is how Jesus, during the triumphal entry and the scriptures that he quotes, he clearly proclaims himself as king. And that's a kingly thing to do. And then he goes into the temple the next day and he cleanses it. That's an authoritative, kingly thing to do. He's, He's trumping everybody there. Another kingly thing that he does, expressing his authority and his power, is curse this fig tree. When Jesus, in expressing his kingly rule, is really, really ruffling a lot of feathers. And things are really heating up about now in his ministry. People already, the Jewish leaders already want to kill him. It's just a matter of time. They've made their minds up. And it's because Jesus is not the king that they were hoping for, expecting, relying on. He did not come in the manner and reign and rule in the manner that they wanted him to or they they thought he would. They were looking 
for a military leader to come gather all the people together so they all take up arms side by side, hand in hand, and they defeat and squash our enemies so they no longer have to be bondservants. They were looking for someone to make them prosperous, a king to join together so that they could be in the land of milk and honey again and they could financially prosper and also politically prosper. That's what kings do. They come and they set you free and they put you on top and then they make your life wonderful. And that's what they were looking for. But Jesus came to the Jewish leaders and and basically what he did is poke them in the eye. He pokes them in the eye. And rather than setting up a revolution, he brings righteousness. And around every corner, Jesus is rebuking them. He's not taking their side. He's not getting rid of their enemies like they want him to do. He is coming after them, the Jewish leaders, and and rebuking them as if they were the enemies. And so they are very, very upset about this, as you can imagine. And they want him gone. He's cleaning up his house. That's what kings do. Sadly, so so Israel there is basically um, looking for a person to come and fit in with the regulations and the hopes that they had they had put together. Jesus doesn't fit that at all. It's almost like he's from a different planet as far as they are concerned. You know, sadly, even in our day, if you look at current events, uh, Israel's still waiting for that king. The same king that the Jews in our text find, they're still waiting for that king. They don't believe that the Messiah has come, the Deliverer has come. So they're waiting for that same king under those same circumstances. It's a sad state of affairs. So what Jesus does is he comes and rather than rallying them up in arms, He denounces them and he denounces their religion. He denounces the way they're worshiping. He's denouncing their hearts. He's calling them out. He's judging them. That was a a kingly thing to do. And then, of course, he he curses this tree. A seemingly uh, kind of a wasted miracle, maybe you might say. I mean, it's powerful. It's a miraculous thing he did. But it seems a little strange. So what is going on here? Does this passage have huge spiritual significance or was did Jesus just have an off day? I think this fig tree represents something huge. This fig tree represents the nation of Israel. And the king has come just to give you the bottom line before I ever get there. The king has come to judge his people. And this fig tree represents his people. He's already condemned their false worship. He's already condemned the way they do life and call it loving God. And now, as a sovereign king who has all power, he condemns them as a as a nation. Here's how it works. He comes to a tree. You read the text. He comes to a tree and it looks outstanding. It looks very promising. There are green, lush leaves on it. And that's always a good sign if you're looking for fruit on a tree. And he comes to it. But when he gets to the tree, he 
he looks for fruit. He's looking for something. He's hungry for something to eat. And there are no figs on that tree. And so he, he kills that tree with his words by speaking a curse to it. You know, there's things in here we don't know about. I mean, why is he hungry? If he was staying, hospitality is a big deal in the Middle East. If he was staying at somebody's house in Bethany, what's he doing hungry? You know, has he just been up a long time and he burned the calories already? Did he give his last, you know, as kind as he is? Did he give his last biscuit to Peter at breakfast? Because they ran out. We, we don't know why he's hungry. But he really is hungry when he approaches this tree. The fig trees were plentiful in the land. Um, they were grown for harvest purposes. People liked them, just like people today like figs and the products that you produce with them. So they liked them. They were harvested. They were grown on farms, but they were also, they would grow um, wild. And you could find them every once in a while around the, around the roadside or just randomly out in the field. And scholars kind of are all over the place as far as, well, why is there no fruit on this tree? And how does that have leaves? And some say, well, actually, it, it wasn't the time of harvest, so... Uh, for this to even have leaves on it, it was kind of ahead of nature. And um, it was a no an anomaly of some kind. And others say, well, when you look at figs, the way they produce actually before the harvest, they produce like a little pre-harvest. They produce some pre-figs or pre-fig product. I didn't really research this very far because it didn't interest me. But anyway, they're supposed to produce like a a pre-fig that's an indication of what the actual harvest of figs will be. Um, whatever the case, what we do know is Jesus had every expectation. He was hungry. He had every expectation that that particular tree should have had fruit on it. By the way, fig trees were also a mark of prosperity and blessing from God because uh, you're not as familiar with it, but when Jesus promised the land of milk and honey, or when God promised the land of milk and honey, also in a lot of those passages are the land has fig trees. So it's a, it's a symbol of blessing and prosperity from God to his people. Jesus wants fruit. The tree has leaves. And he comes to this tree and he is provoked. He's upset. He's not happy with this tree because it does not have what he wants. The fact that there was something wrong with the tree, we don't know. That's besides the point. You know, it's, it's not a horticulture lesson. It's a spiritual lesson. And basically he looks at it and he says, you know, you look healthy. Every indication. There's nothing on you. The whole reason you exist is not just to look good, but to produce fruit. And that's the end of the means and you're not producing fruit. And of course, chronologically, he curses the tree. They're on their way. This is Tuesday. He curses this tree for not producing fruit. And then he does what? He goes into the temple and he drives the money changers out of the house of God. That is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. So he's pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel. You know, they had mastered the art of looking holy. Like if there's such a thing as what would it take to really, really look holy, they mastered it. 
They were very devout. They were very disciplined, very structured, very ruly. All of these things dedicated and they and they did what was required of the law on the outside. They offered their sacrifices. They prayed and prayed and prayed repetitiously to the Lord. They fasted to the point of looking gaunt. They gave in the temple. They did everything to make it look like if anybody's close or right with God, it's me. And Jesus denounces all of this. And already we've heard hints and we've heard things and, and indictments and descriptions that Jesus has called them. It's empty. Going through the motions doesn't count. Now you look really good on the outside and I have every indication that you should really be a holy people that love God, but you're not. And inside, you're not producing fruit because there's no spirit of life in you to produce fruit. This is a this is a scary pronouncement of judgment. Now, when the land doesn't produce fruit or when trees don't produce fruit, that's exactly what the understanding would be in the Old Testament is that God's not happy with us. It's a famine. Our crops aren't doing well. So it's an understanding of a judgment. That's what the prophets taught. So in essence, just like the tree is cut down, so the nation will be cut down. Jesus wants fruit. He judges the nation based on their pretense. Luke tells a very similar parable in chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. You know, when I read that three years, it makes me wonder. Jesus's ministry was three years. Is this the time three years he looked and warned and was ready for repentance from his people and they never repented? And the time has come to cut them down. So that's the message here. And it's very clear that Jerusalem or Judaism is spiritually fruitless. They're cursed. They are ripe. For judgment. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist said the same thing. He came after, he prophesied to the Jewish people and pointed specifically to the rulers. And he said things like, Be warned, the king is here. And he has his winnowing fork in hand, and the chaff, it's going to be burned up. And things like the axe, it's already at the root. I mean, he warned them as clearly as you could warn an individual. That judgment is here and if you do not repent, you'll be burned. You'll be cut off. That is the symbol of the fig tree. Isaiah chapter 5. This is nothing new, by the way, if you think about how does God think about his people. 
Isaiah 5, first seven verses. He puts it in a little different terms. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll take it away. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there, and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And then Isaiah goes on and on and on. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Stories that bring out the reality of the status of their hearts and their souls before God. See, when you reject God on the inside, it doesn't matter how many sacrifices you offer or or how well dressed you are, how bright your clothes are, how loud you pray or how many times or what time you get up to read the Bible in the morning. When we reject God in our hearts, he rejects us and has every right to judge us. For falling short. And this fig tree reveals that Israel has been judged. What is, how does this apply to us? Well, I think it's clear. And throughout Scripture, and this is just another example, God expects fruit from the work of His hands. He, the Spirit comes into us, and the Bible teaches what is called literally fruits of the Spirit. So there's an expectation there by God, for those that he has created and recreated, that we will, our being will behave and think in a certain way. That we will be God-minded, God-focused, kingdom-minded, kingdom-focused, others-focused, as we were reminded in Philippians 2 this morning. With the whole kingdom, the whole package comes into our hearts that we would be transformed to be a light of what the kingdom looks like. There is, it is by grace, but with that grace comes an expectation of fruitfulness for God. And if there is no fruitfulness, just like we find in this text, the explanation after so many times, and God is patient and kind and enduring, long-suffering. Sooner or later, it stops. Nobody goes on forever playing games. Sooner or later, we face the judge. We face the king. And so we always want to be desirous to bear fruit for the kingdom. It can't be about us or it's not about the kingdom. Are we bearing fruit? What is our status before the Lord this morning? And is it for his glory? If you think about the Pharisees, they did all these things for what? The praise of man. 
They got their reward, Jesus said. He looked right into their hearts. He knew what they were really about. Now, they probably would have had me fooled. He knew exactly what it was all about them. They had turned this other-centered religion into a self-focused idol. Turned God into what they wanted him to be. And Jesus is constantly calling them out for it. So judgment comes. Now, the disciples are amazed that this tree died. And they're like, whoa, how'd you do that? And then Jesus seems to like, again, turn the tables and talk about something entirely different. He doesn't say anything about the death of the tree. Then he talks about faith. So he doesn't really answer their question. Doesn't look like it. He talks about faith. And if you have faith, you see that mountain. Of course, they're they're on the mount, Mount Zion. So they're right there in view of a mountain. And he says, great faith can even move this mountain. Now, what does that have to do with it? Well, he has just indicted the nation basically for being dead. They're not producing anything for the kingdom. However, is the idea here. The opposite of that is an individual that has tremendous faith and trust in God. Believes what he says. Conforms their lives to what he says. And that's faith. Trust in him. And so when you have that kind of faith faith and you're God focused and you're kingdom focused and you're absorbed in that. It is incredible what you can do. It is incredible what they can't do because they're lifeless. And you got this tree with all these green leaves and there's no fruit. But when you have faith. You can move mountains. Now, this we've talked about this before. It's not to be taken literally. I wouldn't suggest practicing your faith at the bottom of a mountain, trying to move it. It is it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech, but it's no less powerful. And it's used to describe uprooting obstacles. You can uproot mountains. You can uproot that rock. In other words, you can move out of your way impossible things that are in your way. Faith does that. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith believing in your dreams and your wishes will come true. It's faith in the holy word of God, because what God says is reliable. And so he is teaching his disciples, this is what death looks like. But life and kingdom life, I've written to you. I've preserved timeless words of How things went down in the past, what's happening now, what's going to happen in the future. You're a part of this story. Read it, know it, and believe it. I am at work. And when you start believing that and looking at the world through a kingdom lens, you will be amazed at what your persistent prayer life of believing my promises can accomplish. Don't grow tired. Don't grow weary of it. Have confidence in its truth. And I just want you to know that all the headlines that you read on the media today and pretty much most of the things you, you read on social media do not build your faith in the word of God. It, it's everything is people moving on in this life as if God didn't even exist. You don't get encouraged by reading the news these days. We have to go to the source, the fountain, and that is the word of God. John MacArthur says, 
If I know that something is consistent with God's mind, if I know it's consistent with his will, if I know it's consistent with his purpose, if I know it's consistent with his desire, then I believe that and I can see that come to pass. It is faith in God as God is and God as God has revealed himself to be. That's what we're believing in. And trusting in that what he has said will come to pass. And the more we can get rid of that doubt and unbelief, the more we fruitful we can be in the kingdom of God. All those prayers the religious leaders prayed. Countless hours. And fasting to the point of emaciation. What did that get them? Nothing was dead. But you take a heart that really loves God and believes Him. And that's when things split apart. That's when the impossible is done. And all these things that make us so hopeless come to life. Being used by God in that way, it's humbling. And I know many of you are prayer warriors. Many of you have great faith and you have testimonies of how God has answered you and how God has removed things in your life that that most people said couldn't be done. Of course, just the fact that any of us are here reveals that God is the God of the impossible. The fact that I am here in this pulpit is proof that God is the God of the impossible. So let us not grow weary in trusting and believing in this gift of his word and the person of his presence. Even in the times where perhaps even our friends in Christ seem to be compromising. Reinterpreting what God's word says to form him into the God that they want, the God of convenience. And second in this passage, we have a challenge to authority in verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came. Of course, he had already cleansed it, remember, chronologically. So they come up to him as he was teaching. He said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, hmm, in other words, guys, we better huddle up. We have been stumped. Come on, bring it in close. What do we do with this? If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus. We don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is a good question when you're supposed to be the ruler of the people of Israel. Everything is supposed to run, be run by you. I mean, they have a very intricate system of authority. Very exacting. Very, very well established. You've got to go through certain channels to get things done. And they want to know, who do you think you are coming in here and messing up our system? You didn't ask anybody's permission. You never even flashed your badge. And who's behind the badge? Where's your papers? 
Where is your authority to act in the way and to drive us out, mess our money, our money system up? And we, we got a good thing going here. In the temple of the Lord. Authority denotes power. Authority denotes privilege. Someone who is in authority has the ability to call the shots in that sphere that they've been given. They make the rules and enforce the rules. They make the call. They get to determine things. They get to render judgment. Parents have authority. I used to have to ask my parents for permission for everything. Can I have such and such come over today? Can I go spend the night such and such out? Can I have this? Can I have that? I had to ask permission because they were my authorities. You know, law enforcement is, a, is an authority. You just can't do whatever you want. And if you do, the authorities will come after you. Because there are rules and standards that we have to abide by. There are all authorities all in our lives. The government represents an authority. It's institution, instituted by God. Doesn't mean it does, does everything right. Nor do parents, nor do law enforcement, nor do kings or rulers or whatever. But there are authorities established and they've been given the power and the right to call the shots in these realms. So it denotes privilege. And so there are lots and lots of authorities in, in Jesus' world and in our world. But if you take the authorities from the lowest to the highest and you just keep climbing up the ladder to who's in charge of what and who's in charge of this, at the very, very top, way above everybody else, is Christ, the supreme divine authority that calls all the shots that doesn't have to answer to anybody else pertaining to what he says or what he does. When we get there in Matthew 28, he is going to explain why things are happening the way they are in the world and in the church. When he says, all authority have been given, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Everything is under my realm. There's not a particle that exists in the universe that does not answer to me. That's how in charge Christ is. And they want to know, by what authority do you do these things? You know, we've been in Matthew and the people sensed it. When he taught and he began his ministry, they're like, oh, he's, he's, he's different. And the more he taught and the miracles he performed, you remember that, that um, they were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished. Why? Because he was more inspiring than other teachers. Or because I get more goosebumps listening to his teaching. They were astonished because he taught with authority. That's what shocked them. Who is this guy? I mean, he's not like quoting any rabbis of the day. He just speaks on his own behalf, like as if he's his own authority. He's speaking his own words. You don't have to. There's no footnotes or endnotes to any of this stuff. As if the answer to a better researched authority or a higher theologian or somebody else in power. He's just speaking as if this is the way it is. I mean, we on earth, we always have to reference somebody. It's got to end somewhere as the final authority. And this guy's talking like he's the final authority on all issues. And of course, we know that he is. He didn't have to quote anybody. 
didn't have to give anybody else credit for anything he said. Because it all came from himself. He didn't say, oh, I got this idea from such and such. And I got this idea and permission for do. He has all authority. And it extends to every realm and every sphere. And all we stand to do that believe in Christ is to be blessed and benefit from his authority. So he has authority to invite outsiders to the table to feast in the kingdom. Here's the authority to adopt us as children. John 1.12, yet to all who receive and to those who believe in the name, he gave the right or the authority to become sons of God. How do we become sons of God? But by the authority of Christ. And as we will hear on our Monday Thursday service, where he says, I have authority to lay down my own life. I have authority to just give it away. Just give it. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to hear again, I have authority not only to give it, but to take it up again. He has all authority over all things. And of course, the Jewish rulers have a problem with this because it just steps all over everything. Jesus just ignores their system. Ignores it. And does what's right. And the more he acted in goodness, the more their evil and their darkness was revealed. Jesus doesn't just have the power to do things. See, if I was more powerful than anybody in here, whether I had authority or not, I could just like get out of my way. And do what I want to do because I have the power. He has the right, the privilege to do what he wants to do. To say what he wants to say. So it's the power and the privilege to do that. And stressing them out. This guy is stressing them out as he messes up their system. See, they're really losing control because they worked very hard to finally get things under their control. And let me just tell you that if you really submit your life to Christ, you're going to lose control. You can't keep things in control. Because when you come to Christ, you have to take everything you know or think you know and everything you believe and all your habits and line them up with what God says that's true. And all the stuff that doesn't line up, it's got to go no matter how much you want to keep it. It's got to go. And part of coming to Christ is laying our lives down and taking up our cross, letting the king be the king in every area of our lives. Jesus cleansed their temple that they thought was so spotless and right. Real worship wasn't even taking place. They were hindering the true worship. But they would rather stay in control than repent and trust in God and let God be in control. That's the bottom line. They were absolutely rejected Him. So they demand to know by what Authority, who gave it to you? And so Jesus says, actually, I got a question for you. It's about John the Baptist. Was he from heaven or from earth? Now, that's a good question. Because they fear the people. They're supposed to be over the people. Now, all the people, the general populace came to the consensus that, yeah, John's from heaven. He's a prophet. I mean, did you hear the way he preached? People go in the river. He baptized me for forgiveness of sins. Of course, he was from heaven. That was the consensus. 
even though they didn't listen to him. So they can't say, well, he was just a man. It was a fleshly ministry because then all the people will turn against him. But if they say, actually, no, he was from heaven. Then all they just did is put the noose around their own neck. So then Jesus says, oh, so if his message was from heaven and he said to you, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand and you didn't do it. What does that say about you? Hard heart. So rather than soften their hearts, this is such it's so sad, really. Rather than just soften their hearts, say, you got me. You got me. I have been I knew he was from God and I denied it and I rejected it. I know you're from God. And I, I do want to repent. They said, I don't know. They fake ignorance. I don't know. They would rather keep their control and put things from heaven to death than soften their hearts and repent of their sin. I mean, that's that is evil. That's wicked. And that's mankind went up against God. Spiritual leaders. You know when, it doesn't matter how much evidence we have, if our hearts are set against God, we're not going to believe it. You know, all, everybody else was like, yeah, John's from heaven. Their hearts were already predisposed not to believe. Already rejected. It didn't, didn't, doesn't matter how much evidence you bring to a heart that's already predisposed to unbelief. It's already decided, I reject it. I'm not going to believe it. Reality doesn't matter. They rejected reality. John MacArthur says, when unbelief investigates truth, it comes up with the wrong answer because it's already predisposed to ignore the facts. Well, that was me at a time. That was me. I remember actually believing the gospel was true. I, I changed and got that far, but then I wasn't willing to do anything about it. I mean, that's a hard heart. Yeah, God, you're true, but... What's God say in Hosea 4, 7? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. See what Jesus is saying here? Neither will I give you an answer. It's pretty much that's it. No more spiritual light for you. I've given you all I can give you and you've rejected it time and time again. You're on your own. Genesis 6, 3, when he said, I will not strive with man forever and he won't. There's an end. As we think about this passage this morning, the fig tree. You know, God's word is challenging us to look into our own hearts and do we, do we see fruit from the kingdom or are we playing games? And it's also a challenge for us to see the hope of what really digging in and holding fast to God's truth can accomplish in our lives and for the kingdom of God and for his glory. That's big faith. And it's an encouragement Jesus has all authority. He knows what he's doing. He's the king of everything. He put it all together. He can keep it together. And it's an encouragement for us to submit every area of our lives to his reign and his rule. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.